Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you all here, and uh, I bring my greetings to you this morning from Deeside Christian Fellowship Church, which is about uh, six miles west of the city of Aberdeen in Miltimber. And uh, it's a lovely thought to know that we are one in the Lord Jesus, and uh, we submit ourselves to the same word. Uh, You might like to have your Bibles open at Exodus chapter 16. We're going to be looking quite closely at this passage together. Um, Thinking of Bibles open, I was uh, wandering around some of the cafes of Edinburgh yesterday, and a couple of times there was one person taking a seat of about five people with their head over a book, and it was the latest Harry Potter novel. Forty million pounds J.K. Rowling made in a single day. And I got to thinking what a transformation there might be in, in my city of Aberdeen and perhaps your city in Edinburgh if the cafes and the hotel lobbies of Edinburgh became known for people on a Saturday morning with another book open, leafing through the pages with as much anxiety and excitement as people reading through Harry Potter. Um, If the word is going to go out from this place, it needs to literally do that. Um, If you're like me, I like to keep the Bible within the four walls of my church but it's people outside the church who need to see it and hear it. So when we go on a train to work, or when we sit in a cafe or in a lobby, it's great to have a little copy of the Bible open with you. It may just start a conversation that could have eternal significance. So just think about that as we pray together now that God will help us in understanding his word today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your, your truth is no less solid by the lack of interest that our generation seems to have in it. Father, thank you that your truth is eternal and has ultimately much more value than uh, a mystery story of wizards told to children. Thank you, Father, that you have called us here this morning to build our lives on the truth of your word. So I pray, Father, that this morning the Holy Spirit would move among us helping us to understand what He has sovereignly ordained to be written in Your Word. And may we place our lives in submission to what Your Word is teaching us, the things that we want to hear, as well as the things that we don't want to hear. Father, receive worship from our lives, not just today as we sing praises and sit under Your Word, but as we go out of this place during this week. May you be glorified by lives laid down in your service. We pray this for the glory and name of Jesus. Amen. A young paratrooper was learning to jump, and he was given the following instructions. First, jump when you are told. Second, count to ten and pull the ripcord. Third, in the unlikely event that it doesn't open, pull the second chute open. And fourth, when you get down to the ground, a truck will take you back to base. And so the plane ascended up to the proper height. The men started peeling out of the plane, and the young paratrooper jumped when told. He counted to ten and pulled the cord, but the chute failed to open. So he proceeded to the backup plan, but the second chute also failed to open. And he muttered to himself, oh boy, I suppose when I get down there, the truck won't be there either. (laughs) 
And I guess that's the fear that many Christians have about God. We fear the days when our lives are in free fall, when we are out on a limb, when all there is to depend on and cling to is, a, is an invisible God. We fear that we'll pull the second cord and nothing will happen. And because of that, many Christians never learn to truly trust in God. They start to think of God as a parachute that never opens. And when a crisis hits and God doesn't answer their cry for help immediately, they pull down the shutters. They never go back to Him again. Because of that, many Christians never learn to put their trust in God in a way that Eugene Peterson describes. Eugene Peterson was writing in a Christian magazine recently. He wrote this. The Christian life is all about going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on. They fear the same dangers. They are subject to the same pressures. They get the same distresses. They are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. I wonder, have you learnt to trust God like that in your life? Have you reached the point where you can say that no matter what happens to me in my life, I am preserved by God, I am accompanied by God, I am ruled by God? See, there are many Christians who are happy to sing, Great is thy faithfulness on a Sunday morning. But they live the rest of the week with the fear that the parachute will never open. In Exodus chapter 16, God leads His people, Israel, out of captivity in Egypt and straight into a desert experience. And God is taking His people into a completely barren, hostile situation so that they will learn to trust Him in every detail of their lives. And this chapter gives us four simple insights into what it means for us to truly trust in God. Truly trusting in God firstly means seeing every struggle as God's refining process in our lives. As soon as God brings His people miraculously out of Egypt, He deliberately leads them into four crises. I want you to notice them in your Bibles. At the end of chapter 15, they are desperately thirsty and He brings them to water that is bitter. Here in chapter 16, they run out of food in the middle of the desert. In the first half of chapter 17, again, they have no water. And in the second half of chapter 17, they will be attacked by the Amalekites. So God saves His people, and then He leads them into four crises. And of course, the people don't realize initially that the struggles they are facing have been planned by God. If you look in verse 3, they throw all their complaints at Moses and Aaron. You have brought us out into the desert to starve the entire assembly, they moan. At the end of verse 8, Moses has to tell them straight, you are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. If you are in some form of Christian leadership this morning, you will know that you can get blamed just like Moses and Aaron were here for leading people to a place of struggle when it's really the Lord who has been leading them there all the time. Don't grumble at us, say Moses and Aaron. We're just following instructions from God. He's the one who has led us into this desert, this wilderness. The people just hadn't thought that God would deliberately lead them into difficulty. And not just difficulty, but life-threatening crises. 
These crises revolve around having no food, having no water, being attacked by enemy armies. You see, folks, if we are to truly say as believers, I trust in God, that means believing that every difficult circumstance in my life is in some way allowed and even orchestrated by God. God is sovereignly in control of every area of my life. That's not easy to believe sometimes. We are forced to face the fact that God allows even pain. He allows sometimes life-threatening crises into our lives because He wants to deepen our trust. There is a key word that is used three times through these wilderness wanderings. We have it here in verse 4. God says, in this way I will test them. The word test is used in chapter 15, verse 25. Here in chapter 16, verse 4. And again in chapter 20, verse 20. God brought four life-threatening crises into the lives of His people to test if the people really trusted Him. For you see, when God had miraculously opened the waters of the Red Sea to save the Israelites from Egypt, they got out their tambourines. They were dancing, led by Miriam. But when God leaves those same people without food for a few days, it is grumble, grumble, grumble. The word grumble is used seven times in these opening eight verses. God wanted to know if the hearts of these people were truly for Him, if they would still be faithful to Him in a crisis. Brothers and sisters, it is part of the maturing process in our Christian lives to realize that ultimately God is behind our troubles. God cannot tell that our hearts are for Him simply by our songs of praise on a Sunday when life is ticking along nicely. The reason why Job thrilled God's heart is that he got to the point when God had stripped away every comfort from his life. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. His body was covered in sores, you'll remember. Every element of joy and security in his life, God allowed to be stripped away. Not because Job had done some drastic evil, but because God wanted to test his heart. And Job was still able to say as he sat in the dust, licking his wounds, even if God slays me, I will still trust in him. You know, the New Testament carries the same message. In 1 Peter, Peter is speaking to suffering Christians all over Asia Minor who are being thrown out of synagogues and and mistreated because of their faith. And Peter tells them that God is in control, even of their persecution. He says to them in chapter 1, These trials have come so that your faith, which is worth more than gold, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Folks, our trust in God is worth more than gold. And He will sovereignly bring struggles into our lives, not to break us or destroy us, but so that our faith may be seen as genuine. For you see, folks, when a Christian's life is being crushed like grapes in a wine press, when he is lost under a continuous torrent of crises that are hitting against his life like waves against the seashore. And that Christian can still cry out to God in suffering prayer, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I don't understand why all these things are happening to me, but I cling to you. Lord, you are my hope. And Peter says, praise, glory, and honor come to the name of Jesus. My brother, my sister, God wants to lovingly test you at times in your life to see that your heart is truly for Him. 
Your struggle will not last forever. Peter says in that same chapter, for a little while you have to suffer grief in all kinds of struggles. Your struggle will not last forever. But please see from the Word of God that your struggles are a part of God's refining process in your life. God wants your faith to be genuine. Not just on days when He does something wonderful for you and you want to get out your tambourine and dance if you do that kind of thing in Charlotte Chapel. But also in days when you lose your job or you have to watch your children suffer or you're enduring a long-term illness that no doctor can diagnose or understand. Could it be that God is allowing these trials of various kinds because your faith is so precious to Him? Sometimes the most profound worship is squeezed out of the most intense struggle. Trusting in God means seeing every struggle as God's refining process. But trusting in God means, secondly, looking to God for every need, looking to Him for every need. It's interesting that the test God gives His people here has to do with the the basic necessities of life, doesn't it? The thirst for water in chapters 15 and 17. The hunger for food in chapter 16. And God provides miraculously the bread in the morning and the meat in the evening that these people need. But God has rules in this passage for how the people collect this miraculous provision. When they collect the manna from the ground in the morning, they must only take what they need for that day. They cannot keep the food overnight. Verse 19, Moses says it clearly, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Now why did God give that strange instruction? Did he not want the people to plan ahead and make sure they had enough? Well, God here was teaching his people a profound lesson. The lesson that we need to look to God for our daily needs all the time. The people had to keep trusting God that he would send the manna fresh every morning. God wanted to provoke a daily trust in his people. Give us today our daily bread. We've just prayed it to God. Do we live that way? For 40 long years, God provoked the people to live this way in the desert, thanking Him for what He had given them today and waiting on Him for what He was going to miraculously provide tomorrow. And what a lesson that is for us to learn in our lives and to teach our children. Like a father with his children, God wants us to trust Him implicitly to provide us for all that we need. And God values our trust in Him so highly that He will sometimes deliberately withhold from us what we need until we get on our knees to ask Him for it. Of course, the struggle that many of us have living in the abundance that we enjoy in a place like Edinburgh and certainly in Aberdeen is how do we show God our daily trust in Him? I mean, when 50 varieties of bread lie ready to eat in our supermarkets, when clothing in all different shapes and sizes lie on the multitude of rocks in our packed-out stores, when the internet opens up for us just about anything our hearts could desire and, and lots more besides, how can we show the trust in God that He appreciates so much? I mean, the fear is, quite frankly, that we become spoilt children. Children who complain about the tiny things that He withholds from us, and take for granted the absolute mountain of things to suit our every taste that He bountifully pours into our wealthy lives all the time. 
I mean, let's face it, folks. God is raining down manna from heaven every day on us. We've just got used to it. But I do think there are two simple ways that we can show our trust in the Lord in the midst of our abundance. Firstly, we can live thankfully. Live thankfully. A few weeks ago, the the African Children's Choir came to my church in Aberdeen. I don't know if you've ever seen them. My church is quite an affluent church in the suburb of Miltimber. And these African children went to Miltimber Primary School in the morning. And at lunchtime, these children literally held up the dinner queue. The dinner lady was getting quite annoyed with them. And the children quite spontaneously wanted to sing grace to God before taking their food. I tell you, there was barely a dry house in that school canteen as these African orphans sang, Thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds that sing. Thank you, Lord, for everything. Brothers and sisters, let's learn to be deeply thankful for all of God's good provisions in our lives. Let's teach our children to say grace before mealtimes. Let's talk openly together as families about how the things that so easily cover our dinner tables and fill our wardrobes are ultimately gifts directly to us, given to us by a generous and faithful Father in Heaven. It's not that God wants us to feel guilty about our wealth any more than a child should feel guilty when his father gives him something special. But God does want us to be deeply thankful for all our resources and to acknowledge publicly and openly that He is the source of them all. But we can also show our trust in God in the midst of our plenty by learning to share. You'll notice here when Israel gathered their food under God's instructions that there was enough for every individual and every family. Look at verse 18. It says there, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. It's interesting when we come over to the New Testament, Paul quotes this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to encourage the wealthy church in Corinth to share their finances with the poorer mother church in Jerusalem. And surely a way that well-resourced Christians like you and me can show their trust in God is not just to have thankful hearts for His abundant provision, but also to be generous givers. Scripture is so painfully practical sometimes, isn't it? And what a lovely thing it is to see a Christian who does not crave after the hoarding of wealth, but sees their wealth as a resource for God's kingdom, saying to God, Lord, You have given me much, but it's not too much. Because I know that you just want me to be a distribution center for your kingdom. You have given me the unique honor of feeding the poor and clothing the naked. The honor of funding world mission and evangelistic ventures in my city and abroad. The honor of buying Christian books and and purchasing things for people who just don't have any. The joy especially of meeting local needs in my local congregation for all the ventures that they are praying for God they want to do. Father, thank you for allowing me to be a distribution center for your people. Folks, God gives us wealth, at least in part, so that we can bless other less resourced people whom He loves just as much. 
if God had made all people equally wealthy, there would be little room for giving and generosity, which is so close to the Father's heart. Here in Israel, each one gathered as much as he needed. Let's learn how to trust God for every need, even in our abundance, as we live thankful lives and as we give generously to God and his eternal kingdom work. But thirdly, we also show our trust in God by obeying God in every detail. Every detail. God gave very specific instructions to the people here for how they were to gather their food. And I'm sure as the people first heard these instructions, they must have seemed pretty odd to them. Why on earth is God saying this? Why does God want us to only collect food enough for one day? God had also said later on in the chapter that, that on the sixth day of the week, the people had to collect a double portion because God would not send the food on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was to be a day of rest. A God-centered day when the people stayed in their tents with their families and did not go out to gather the food. God would ensure that the food collected on the day before the Sabbath day would not spoil overnight so that God's people could keep the Sabbath day holy. And all of this was part of God's test for His people. God wanted His people to trust Him so implicitly that they would follow all the detailed instructions that He gave them to the letter, whether they understood why He was giving that instruction or not. And of course, some Israelites didn't obey God. Some of them kept food overnight. Verse 20, we read quite clearly, they kept part of the manna until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Some others didn't obey the command not to leave their tents on the Sabbath day. You can imagine some of them, quite petulant. Verse 27, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather the manna, but they found none. Surprise, surprise. And then the Lord said, how long will you refuse to keep my commands? You see, folks, when the people deliberately chose to disobey God's instructions, two things inevitably happened. The people were frustrated and God was angry. And folks, this is an urgent warning that the church needs to hear in our day of, of moral laxity and political correctness. As Christians, we do not take our values and ethics and lifestyle from what is acceptable in society around us. We will only be truly blessed as people when we obey God's commands in every detail. Now, sometimes God's commands may seem strange to us. I mean, why does God not allow a couple to live together before they get married? I mean, it seems logical to try out your partner before you marry them. Let's face it, everybody else is doing it. But God commands us to keep the marriage bed pure, to save ourselves sexually until we have made a public vow before God and our neighbors to be committed to each other till death do us part. God's commands are a test for us. Do we trust Him that He truly knows best for our lives? Because folks, if we choose to live outside of God's commands for us, two things will inevitably follow. We will end up frustrated like those people who find maggots in their manna the next day. And God will be angry with us. 
How long will you refuse to keep my commands? Folks, God wants us to honor His commands in every detail. Not to kind of mix the best of biblical values with what is generally acceptable in society around us. He wants to see obedience even when it costs us. Even when people around us think we're crazy, and they will. Even when we don't fully understand all the reasons why God has commanded us to do this thing. Ultimately, it's a basic issue of who do we trust. Brothers and sisters, will you obey God's commands about church attendance? Hebrews says, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Is this a once on a Sunday only congregation? Will you obey God's commands about faithfulness within the marriage covenant? You shall not commit adultery. Will you obey God's commands about marrying Christians only? Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Serious commands, folks. And I have seen the frustration that stepping outside of God's commands can cause. If a Christian deliberately marries a non-Christian, fully aware of God's commands, then either the faith of the Christian will be weakened over time to please his or her spouse, or the Christian inevitably suffers the pain of his or her partner not sharing his passion for Christ. Which is it going to be? Now, of course, some people find themselves in that situation through no fault of their own before they ever became Christians. And there is grace for those who seek it. Of course there is. But friends, deliberately stepping outside of God's commands inevitably leads to our frustration and to God's anger. We could say the same about gossiping. It leads to our frustration and God's anger. Lying, it leads to our frustration and God's anger. Manipulating other people to get what we want, it leads to our frustration and God's anger. Folks, trusting in God means realizing that His commands are ultimately for our good as well as for His honor and glory. Let's be people who show our trust in God by obeying Him in every detail. As Deuteronomy says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is our calling in life. And fourthly and finally, we can show our trust in God by remembering God's goodness in every new challenge. In verse 32 of this passage, God commands Moses to take a piece of this manna and to preserve it for generations to come. Eventually we read that the Israelites kept this manna in a, in a golden jar near the Ark of the Covenant in the most sacred place in Israel along with the Ten Commandments. In verse 34 we read, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony. God wanted Israel to keep a sacred record of his miraculous provision during all these wilderness years. For 40 years, we're told, every day, apart from the Sabbath, God provided this manna. The people even got to the point when they were fed up with their diet because God kept providing the same manna miraculously all the time. But this manna was ultimately kept in a jar for future generations to be reminded of the goodness of God. You know, that's often my biggest problem 
every time I hit a fresh crisis in my life. I forget. I forget. Folks, we are so prone to forget those times in the past when our hearts just leapt for joy over God's miraculous provision at an important point of our lives. All those memories suddenly go sailing out the window. It's as though we have never known God. And our hearts melt like wax in front of the next ordeal. Folks, where do you keep your jars of manna in your life? There are Christians I know who who keep meticulous records in their prayer diaries of, of prayers that systematically God has answered. And every time a new crisis comes and hits their life, which they will, they remind themselves of God's unswerving faithfulness in the past. Other Christians I know keep helpful Bible texts on their desk at work or on their walls at work or at home. Texts that spoke to them powerfully at a particular point of struggle in their lives or a a particularly meaningful text to their situation. It's their jar of manna. If you're a married Christian couple here this morning or, or you have especially close Christian friends, it is great to spend time with them talking through past experiences when God has intervened in your life when you needed Him the most. You see, in that way, you are putting manna into your jar. You are preparing your soul for the struggles ahead by intentionally remembering God's goodness from the past. And this is God's purpose for us. That as we grow in our Christian maturity, each new challenge brings with it a growing confidence in our souls that God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in times of trouble. In fact, in my experience, God increases the struggles of mature believers. Often God trusts mature Christians with extra doses of trouble, if you like. Because God knows that they will trust Him in return. They have grown to be keenly aware of God's faithfulness in every circumstance. So my friend, each time you hit a struggle, are you just as grasping, just as fretful, just as grumbling as the last time? Or have you truly discovered in your life that God is your strong tower? The righteous run to Him and they are saved. Learn to gather your jars of manna so that you're ready for the dark days, for the valley of the shadow, for the sudden shocking news on the phone, for the tests of faith that will inevitably come our way in these lives that God is sovereignly ordaining. The book of Isaiah compares mature Christians to oaks of righteousness. You can see the strength of that image, can't you? Psalm 1 says they are like trees planted by streams of water, always being replenished by the provider. They're Christians who see their struggles as a refining process. Christians who have learned to look to God for their every need who know what it means to obey God in every detail, even when it costs them. And believers who remember God's goodness with every new trial. That's what it means, people of God, to be able to say with confidence, in God we trust. May it be so in your life and in mine. 
this week as we seek to be people of his pleasure. Let's take time.